Father, we want to see Jesus high and lifted up this morning. Father, as we stand looking towards the second advent in this season of advent, God, show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, have you ever thought about just how many calendars govern your life? Think about it for a second. Obviously, we have the yearly calendar, the the January through December calendar that governs pretty much the affairs of the entire world. But there are others. If you are in school or you have a child in school, then you're also governed by an academic calendar. If you own a business or you work at a business, then you're governed by some sort of fiscal calendar that it governs your budget and your finances. Now there's lots of other calendars, but what I want to point out is that, that all of these calendars, they affect our lives in one way or another. You see, they all mark out time for us. And in doing so, what they're doing is that they're actually making a claim upon our life. Each of these calendars, they they set agendas for our life because they govern how and when we do various things. And those claims upon our lives, what I want to suggest this morning, and those agendas that they set for us, well, it, it actually makes us see the world in a certain way, and it has a formative effect on us because it forms us to be a certain kind of people. Well, as Christians, we have another calendar that governs our life. Um, We call it the liturgical calendar because it marks out the seasons of the Christian year for us. And just like all of these other calendars, the liturgical calendar does make a claim upon our life. It actually sets an agenda for our life and it forms us to be a certain kind of people because what it does is that it draws us close to Jesus, who really is the only one who is worthy enough to actually make a claim upon our life or set an agenda for our life. Well, here's how this works. Here's what this does. You see, as we move through the entire Christian year, what we're doing is we're going on a journey with Jesus. And each season, we're going to walk with Jesus as his companions and as his disciples through really all the events of his life. For example, in a couple weeks, we're going to kneel in Bethlehem beside a bunch of shepherds and worship a baby in a manger. Then we're going to start moving from village to village, and we're going to witness healings and restorations. We're going to stand in amazement as Jesus reaches out his arms of love and embraces children and lepers and foreigners and all of those whom society deems outcast. And then we're going to sit on mountaintops at his feet, and we're going to listen to his teaching, and we're going to see him transfigured before us. In a few months, we're going to walk with the crowds beside Jesus, and we're going to cry Hosanna. And then a few weeks later, or a few days later, we're going to, with the same crowds, cry crucify him. And then after that, we're going to stand at an empty tomb and sing hallelujah, and then be sent out into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming that Jesus is the world's true Lord, the one who has broken the power of sin and death and has broken the power of everything that wants to lay a claim upon our life. And friends, when we do that, year after year, that certainly has a formative effect on us. You see, so we go on this journey with Jesus in order to continually recalibrate our lives, to recalibrate our lives according to his life so that we might be formed in Christ's likeness and 
so that our relationship with Jesus might deepen and that our faith might be matured. So here we are this morning. We're in Advent. We're beginning again our Christian year anew. We're setting out once again on this journey with Jesus like we do every single year. But when we set out on this particular journey, one thing we need to notice on this first Sunday of Advent is that our journeys with Jesus, it doesn't begin where most journeys begin. It begins, it doesn't begin at the beginning, it actually begins at the end. Not looking backwards, but looking forward to Christ's promised return. See, we're gonna begin our journey with Jesus by recalling the promise of his return to judge the world, to set the world right, and to make all things new. It's a promise of final salvation. It's the promise of final perfect union with Christ. And so we begin our journey in this present by recalling the future. And the reason why we do that is because it's the future hope that actually sets the agenda for our lives for the rest of the year. It's the the future hope that gives us grace to live faithfully in the present. And in fact, that's actually always been the case. That's always been the case. If you read through the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul, this truth of Christ's second coming is always held out for us. And it's this truth that has given hope to the early Christians, that's given them hope, it's given them courage in the face of persecution, it's given them endurance to live faithfully, strength to accomplish God's mission in the world. The hope of the future governed Christians' lives in the past, and the hope of the future still governs Christians' lives, even in the present. And that's why we begin where we begin in Advent. Now, yes, we are preparing to celebrate the first Advent, the coming at Christmas, but what we're doing in this season is we're really looking kind of through that first Advent on into the second Advent. And as we look towards the second Advent, what it does is it gives us a vision for how to live faithfully in our present time, this time between the times, this time between the Advents. And Again, what I want to suggest to you is that as Christians walking through this liturgical year, that gives us clarity on how to live faithfully January through December. Now, our journey with Jesus does not take us out of January through December, but I believe it teaches us how to live in January to December, but not live of January to December. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. to to Luke chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 25. We're going to look this morning at the gospel passage that Fred read just a moment ago. And I think when we do, we're going to find some important truths about our future hope that are important for our journey with Jesus, that guides us on our journey with Jesus. As you're turning to Luke 21, let me just set the scene for us. Luke 21, we pick up in verse 25. We're actually picking up at the end of a much longer section. It's called the Olivet Discourse. Now, a couple weeks ago, we actually looked at the beginning of this section, particularly as it was spelled out in Mark chapter 13. And what we saw there was Jesus prophesying. He was prophesying the destruction of the temple. He was prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. He told of wars and rumors of wars and of nations rising and falling and of natural disasters. He said, this is only the beginning of the end. Today, this vision is going to expand a little bit, and we're going to pick up the culmination of this discourse according to the Gospel of Luke. Let me also say this, too. When we look at a passage like this, 
because of some cultural things, it's easy to look ahead and think that all of this stuff is, it might just be like in the future. But what I want to suggest to you this morning, because I believe this is what this particular passage holds out for us, is that this is a description of what it looks like to live between the times, between the advents, between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And so everything that, we're, that Jesus is going to talk about are things that we're experiencing. It's intensifying, but this is, this is going to be truth for today for us. So let's look at this. We're going to start in verse 25. Jesus says, he says, look, there will be signs in sun and moon and earth and on, I'm sorry, in sun and moon and stars and on earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds. Let's stop there for just a second. Because what I want to do in this, just in this particular passage is I want to draw your attention to the reactions of the people in the passage. Because I think that's really the point of this little section, is how are people reacting? Nations are in distress. There is perplexity. People are fainting with fear. There is foreboding about what is coming on the entire world. We're not just talking about Jerusalem anymore. This is expanded to the entire world. Now, in Scripture, when you're reading Scriptures, and you, you see the, the designation of the nations, what the nations represent is really everybody in the world that does not worship the God of Israel. Everybody that doesn't worship the God of Israel, that's who the nations are. And Jesus is saying here in this passage that the nations are being overwhelmed by the chaos of the world. And friends, if we look around, this is a reality that we see all the time, right? There are wars, there are rumors of wars, there, is, there are nations in distress. Think about it. Look at the border crisis. Look at, at the Middle East. Look at the fires in California. Look at Wall Street. Look at, at the UK. The nations are in distress, and it's intensifying daily. Jesus describes all of this, but then watch what he does. He turns to us. He turns to his disciples, and he says, look, that's how the nations are responding, but that's not an appropriate response for the people of God. That is distress and fear, that's an inappropriate response for Christ's church, for Christ's ecclesia, the ones whom he has called from out of the nations. Jesus says, look, when you experience all of these things that the world is experiencing, he says, I want my church to respond differently. And here's what he says in verse 28. He says, now when these things take place, straighten up, raise your head, because your redemption is drawing near. Christ's call to us is, is a, not a call to fear, but to confidence. This is a posture of confidence that he's telling us to take. It's a posture of assurance. And it's a posture of assurance that God is at work. Where the world sees everything falling apart and falling into chaos, we, the church, we should see the good news of God's coming redemption of all things. How? What makes the difference for us as the people of God? I mean, we look around and, and we read about wars and we hear about all the natural disasters that, that all of our unbelieving neighbors hear about, right? We're not experiencing different things. Christians don't see different things that everybody else does. But what Christ is saying is that he wants us as Christians to see things differently. And I think that's really the key to all of this. In verse 25, in verse 25, he calls all the things happening signs. 
What are signs? Signs are things or events that, that happen that really point beyond themselves to a much larger reality. You see, in Jesus' counsel for his church is to be watchful and to see these as signs, to see the signs. The nations and all the people of the earth are fearful and in distress because they can't see things clearly. Their eyes have not been opened, they are blinded, but the people of Christ, however, should see that there is something much bigger taking place. Much bigger taking place. In other words, that God is in control. And that even as creation is groaning under the weight of sin and even as the wickedness of humanity is intensifying, these signs just point to a much larger reality that God is working out his plan to bring an end to evil and to sin and to tyranny and to violence and oppression in all of its forms so that he can usher in his final renewed creation and his final renewed humanity. Because friends, when God puts an end to all things, notice this. When God puts an end to all things, it's really just a new beginning. Right? God, is in the, God is in the business of making all things new, of bringing out new life from that which seems to be dying. And so our confidence comes because we can see that all of this means that God is at work. That God is at work in the world, and we have assurance and confidence that the chaos of the world will not thwart the plans of our God. Because we know that our God has power over all things. This is actually what is meant by that reference to the coming of the Son of Man. It's a reference straight out of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where we saw in Daniel chapter 7, one coming like a son of man, being Jesus. He comes and he takes the throne of the ancient of days, being God. And what is given to the son of man? All dominion, all glory, all honor, and he is given a kingdom that will have no end and a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. Jesus pushes this truth actually a little bit further in verse 33 where he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will, will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Because Jesus is the one with all power and all authority, his kingdom possesses a stability that no other kingdom has. The fact is, all kingdoms, all kingdoms come and go. Whether we're talking about the kingdoms of the world or we're talking about these little kingdoms that we set up in our own lives, they all come and go. We live in a world that is characterized by instability. Almost everything in our lives, relationships, vocations, our 401ks, nothing is permanent, nothing is stable. And for the rest of the world that goes throughout the daily January through December, that truth causes anxiety and hopelessness. But for us, for Christ Church, the truth of the instability of the world is not supposed to be a source of fear, but it should point us to the truth that we have been called out from this instability into a kingdom that cannot be shaken because it is ruled by an everlasting king. I think this is a truth that Jesus is getting at in verse 26. In verse 26, he says, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Now, the idea of shaken is kind of like a sifting. Think about the idea of sifting. When you sift something, everything that is not useful, anything that is impure, well, it falls apart. And what's left is the good stuff, the, the things that, that are pure and the things that are stable. And so 
In the same way, he's saying that all the powers of the heavens are going to be sifted, and anything that pretends to be ultimate and permanent and more powerful than they really are is going to be exposed. What he's talking about is judgment. It's an idea of judgment. When Christ returns, we know that he's gonna come as judge, and for us as his church, that is a source of hope that guides our daily lives because we know that all the evil in, in the world that seeks to overwhelm us and to enslave us and to set agendas for our lives well, we know that it's going to be done away with, and in its place is going to be an everlasting kingdom. It reminds me of the words of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, when he says, he describes, he describes it this way. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18, says, he reminds us, he says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, a gloom, and a tempest, but you have come to Mount Zion, you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You have come to God, who is the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, you have been brought to Jesus, the mediator of a new and everlasting covenant. But then he goes on and he describes things a little bit more. He quotes a verse, um, he quotes a verse out of scripture and it says, but it says, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's God speaking. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And the writer of Hebrew goes on and explains it this way. He says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that can be shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be, that have not, I'm sorry, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, with this truth in mind, church, therefore, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Churches, on this Advent, we need to remember that when we are in the midst of life and it seems like everything is completely falling apart, that we have received and inherited a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's a truth to live by. That is a truth to live by. That the Jesus that we worship is the judge of the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. It's a truth that we need to constantly hold out before us because it's a source of hope that gives us confidence to live faithfully January through December. So now what? So now what? Now that we know what it means when what it's gonna look like when Jesus returns. We know that he's working out his plan. What does that mean for us? Well, guess what? In verse 34, Jesus gives us the answer to that. In verse 34, Jesus says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. Basically, Jesus is encouraging us to be watchful and not to get sidetracked or distracted by all the lesser things of the world. Let me give you a pop quiz here. The song that we love to sing every Christmas, Joy to the World. Did you know that that's not actually a Christmas song? Did you know that's actually an Advent song about the second coming of Christ? And what is the great line that's in that song? It's one of my favorite lines. Let every heart prepare him room. 
Let every heart prepare him room. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Don't let your hearts get weighed down with the things of life, the sins of life, the cares of this world, those things that want to set agendas for our lives. Don't let your hearts get weighed down because all it does is it distracts you from living faithfully and waiting for the coming of our Lord. He says, put all of that stuff aside. Think about the, the, the phrase, the cares of the world. In the parable of the sower, we know that great parable, scatters the seeds and they grow, but weeds come up and, and it chokes out faith. And he calls those weeds, he calls those the cares of this life. Again, Jesus is saying, put all of that stuff aside. Put all of that stuff aside. There is, there are so many things in this world that vie for our allegiance, that vie for our love, that vie for our attention. There are so many things in our life that set themselves up as permanent and ultimate and want to set agendas for our lives. And Jesus says, set all of that stuff aside. Take your cares, cast them on Christ, who is the Lord of all of those cares. That's the meaning of Advent. That's what we're, that's what we're wanting to live into as we start this Advent year, or we start this liturgical year again. Now, Jesus' words for us to set aside all of our cares and not get weighed down, it's pretty simple. It's simple, but it's not simplistic. Admittedly, it's not always that easy, especially when we're living in this time between the times and we're, we're seeing all of the chaos of the world. It can be overwhelming. It is true. There are times when even those of us who know that, who can look ahead, we can still feel like we're getting overwhelmed and we come to that place where it seems like all we can say is, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Friends, let me encourage you and say that, that that is an appropriate response for the church living in the time between the times as long as it does not come from a place of despair. As long as it doesn't come from a place of despair. In those times which we which we will inevitably experience. Let me offer these words to you. In those times where we're crying out, how long, O oh Lord, I also want you to cry out the words that Job cried out. You know Job, this guy who experienced more suffering and more pain than probably anybody else in history, save Jesus Christ. In the midst of suffering and pain, he cries out and he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth. Though my body might turn to dust, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I know that my Redeemer lives. Friends, let me suggest to you that that's the cry of a church living in the time between the times that's experiencing all the chaos of the world, but knows that its Redeemer is coming soon, that knows that its Redeemer lives, that knows that his redemption is drawing near. It also knows that, it's, that the world's true Lord is one whose word will never pass away. And so as we end and as we move on into the season of Advent, let me commend this truth that Christ's words will not pass away. And let me end by, re, by calling your attention to the last words that Jesus ever says to us in Scripture. The last words that Jesus ever says to us in Scripture is in Revelation chapter 22. And he says this. He says, Surely I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. And I think the best response to that is the response of John the Revelator where he says, amen, come Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.